In anticipation of the giving of the Torah and the revelation at Har Sinai, the Torah makes clear in a command from Hashem to Moshe, which is communicated to the Jewish people, that there needs to be a distance, a Hagbalah, in the words of the Torah, that the Jewish people keep away from the mountain. The Torah tells us in Perak Yutes, Pasuk Yudbeis, the Jewish people are told to set a boundary around the mountain, but no one can go up the mountain, no one can even touch the edge of the mountain, and whoever does so shall die. The Torah continues as the story unfolds. We read just a few psukim later that there's a three-day period of preparation and then we read on that third day, in the morning, there were kolos ubrakim, thunder and lightning, and a heavy cloud, anan kaved, descended on the mountain, a kol shofar chazak ma'od, loud sounds of a shofar, of a trumpet, the people were getting scared, v'yecharad kol everyone was scared, Moshe went out to speak, and they stood there at the foot of the mountain, exactly as they've been previously told. The entire mountain is engulfed in smoke, Har Sinai, Ashan Kulo, as Hashem's presence descended on the mountain. And then we read, as Hashem has summoned Moshe, and he tells him, Hashem al Har Sinai, al He summons Moshe to the summit, come up to the mountain. Hashem Moshe, raid ha'ed. And then immediately tells him, go back down to the people and tell them, Go back down and warn the people that they should not come to destruction, that they should come to see, to break through, to see what was going on on the mountain. And he continues, and he tells them about what to say to the Kohanim. And then finally, when Hashem, when Moshe, excuse me, has a chance to reply, he says, Yomar Moshe, Hashem, you already told us you're telling me again the same thing you just told me three days ago I already told them they can't go up that they can't go up onto the mountain and Hashem says no go down I'm telling you tell the people this but don't worry you and Aaron will come up eventually to the mountain you'll be able to come up again and Moshe repeats the command and immediately immediately the very next pasuk is that we begin with the Aseris Adibros. It seems like a little bit of a disappointment for Moshe. It sounds like Hashem had promised him, don't worry, go back down, tell the people, and then you'll come back up as if, you know, you'll come back up and I'll, you'll be there for the, for the Aseris Adibros, but somehow, at least according to the simple reading of the Psukim, Hashem starts the Aseris Adibros before Moshe can get back up on the mountain. This is the brief summary or overview of these last 10, 12 Psukim here in Perak Yotes. What is fascinating is why the need to repeat the command. As was mentioned, twice, initially and then again three days later, Moshe gives the command to the people not to go up, not to touch the mountain. And already Rashi and earlier Mepharshim are sensitive to this question, and we see Moshe himself apparently was bothered. Why are you repeating this? So Rashi actually tells us in the Apostle Chavdalid that in fact this is quite normal. It makes sense. First you tell somebody in advance what the instructions are. And then then it makes sense that at the moment of actual, uh, when this comes to fruition, which is actually the time is now, then you repeat it because it's become practical, because it's become Lamaisa. Uh, 
The only downside is that uh, Rashi makes it so obvious and so natural that Hashem would repeat the command that therefore begs the question, why did Moshe question Hashem? So for this, we can turn our attention to the Rashbam. Even though Rashi was quoting a Medrash and Rashbam is you know, king of the Pashtanim, nevertheless, Rashbam in the previous Pasuk also basically gives the same interpretation as Rashi. I didn't see anyone who made this point, but it seems uh, if you put the two together, Rashbam is saying the same thing as Rashi. He thinks it's you know, very obvious and normal and commonplace. People repeat repeat instructions, they repeat warnings. We know in life, usually it's not a, you know, if you have people who you're working with, employees, children, all sorts of scenarios, just telling somebody who something wants is not usually enough. So Rashbam says, yes, Moshe, Hashem had to repeat it to Moshe, it's not a big deal. What Rashbam adds above and beyond Rashi is, well, how come Moshe questioned it? If it's so obvious and so natural to repeat, why did uh, Moshe question Hashem? So here the Rashbam adds that if you look carefully at the Psukim, the first uh, Pasuk just speaks about not ascending the mountain or touching it. Now, this more recent Pasuk talks about don't even break through, that you can't even see what's going on in the mountain. So Moshe is really asking, says Rashbam, you know, did something change? Do we have to keep a, a broader perimeter? Do we have to even be further away? Can the people not even see? And then Hashem clarifies to Moshe, no, what I mean to say is you can't come so close that you get on the mountain and then you can see. But if you're far away from the mountain but can still see, that would be fine. Finally, I just want to add something which I think is really quite profound, and that is the question of why the need for this prohibition of Hagbalah to stay away from the mountain, and how does that help us explain why Hashem felt the need to reiterate it. And here we have a very profound insight of the Or HaChaim HaKadosh back on Pasuk Chavalv. He says that Hashem reiterates and repeats this Isser of Hagbalah because he is worried about the people going forward anyway. They know it's prohibited, I've already told them, I know it's on the penalty, they know it's on the penalty of death, and yet Hashem is still worried that they'll do it. Why? Because perhaps out of religious zeal, perhaps the people in their pursuit of spiritual ecstasy, the people will break through. Maybe they won't care about the consequences. They'll want this transcendental experience, they want to feel close to divine spiritual ecstasy, and the consequences be what they may, as long as they can have that one experience of transcendent spirituality. So Hashem tells Moshe, no, repeat, instruct the people again. This is not what Hashem wants from us. He wants us to live and sanctify the real world. He does not want us to have such an experience which a normal human being could not survive. And perhaps there would be some form of spiritual ecstasy, but it would also be the end of our lives. And that's not what Hashem wants. Hashem wants us to be able to have spiritual experiences but yet have some level of boundary from pure spirituality so that symbolizing that in fact we are not fully spiritual, but basically have enough of our foot in the real world, quote-unquote, in this world, to live with it. When Yisro was first introduced, he is described as the Chohen Midian, Chosein Moshe, the high priest of Midian, and Moshe's father-in-law. This is the opening Pasuk in our Parsha, the first Pasuk in Perak Yudchet. While it's understandable why we are informed about his relationship to Moshe, in fact, throughout the Perak, he is repeatedly referred to as Moshe's father-in-law, and this makes total sense. After all, if we didn't know his relationship to Moshe, we wouldn't understand what he's doing there, why is Moshe listening to him, why is Moshe respecting him, so we need to have some context of who he is. So, okay, we get that. We understand why the Torah tells us that he's Moshe's father-in-law. But it is not at all clear why we need to know about his status as an idolatrous priest, as the Chohen Bajan. 
This is especially curious in light of the Ramban's contention. The Ramban says this in Sefer Bereshis in a different context, but his contention is that the Torah avoids mentioning of Zarah unless it's absolutely necessary for the context and for the story. But in our situation, far from necessary, the reference to Yisro's past Avodah worship appears totally unnecessary and even gratuitous. What does this information add to the story? Why is it relevant and certainly why is it necessary for the Torah to tell us this? Simcha Zissel Broid, who was the previous Rosh Hashiva of the Chevron Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, suggests a beautiful answer to this question, which is included in his multi-volume work, Sam Derech, which is a collection of his insights not only on the Chumash, but specifically based on Shi'urim that he used to give in the thought and the explanation and the interpretation and the commentary of the Ramban. It's a very beautiful set of penetrating essays on Chumash. And in his essay on our Parsha, he explains and answers this question in light of a well-known statement that Rashi makes just a few psukim later. Later on in our Perak, in Perak Yerches, Pasuk Aleph, Yud Aleph, excuse me, Pasuk 11, Yisro declares, Ata yadati ki gadol Hashem mikol Elohim. Now I know, now I realize that God is greater, Hashem is greater than all of the other gods. Commenting on this seemingly innocuous and certainly flattering statement that Yisro makes about Hashem, the Jewish God, Rashi quotes a statement from the Medrash. That we have to realize that Yisro, in fact, had previously worshipped every other Avodah all other idolatries in the world. And even if one is tempted to say that perhaps this is a little bit of hyperbole on the part of the Medrash and Rashi, maybe yes, maybe no, I don't know, but even if it's slightly hyperbolic, clearly the effect and the intent of the Medrash and Rashi is to say that Yisro was well-versed in many, many different, maybe literally every, and if not every, many other idolatries. Now he was Chohen Mijan, but way before that he had tried many other Vodazaras. And presumably the reason that Rashi tells us this, and the Medrash makes the point, is because it really makes his comment, you could say his compliment, to Hashem and to Judaism that much more meaningful. If I say that something or someone is the greatest, but I have no experience and I have no basis of comparison... It's a nice thing to say, but frankly, it's a little bit superficial and, you know, perhaps maybe even disingenuous. But in this case, says Rashi, says the Medrash, Yisro knew of what he spoke. He had much to compare it to. After all, after all, he had tried many other Vodazaras. He had seen what was out there in the world. He had experienced life and all the different pagan religions. And given everything he had seen, everything he knew, everything he had previously experienced, he had ample basis of comparison. And even then, despite all of that, or maybe Dafka, because of all that information, Ati Adati Ki Hashem Mikala Elohim. Elohim, excuse me. God is greater than all the other uh, pagan gods and Avodazaras. That's the comment of Rashi, that's the Pasuk a little bit later on in our parak. Now, Rav Simcha Zissel makes the following analysis of this Rashi. At first glance, it might appear it puts Yisro in negative light. You know, what kind of person is this? He's running from religion to religion, from idol to idol. Either he can't make up his mind, or maybe he has so many ravenous uh, desires. We know that a lot of the ancient pagan religions were, frankly, hedonistic. Maybe he has ravenous hedonistic appetites, which sent him from one pagan idol to the next. 
you know, what does this say about Yisrael? You might think that this makes him sound very scatterbrained, uncommitted, or hedonistic. Says Reb Simcha Zissel, in fact, it's the opposite. This is a compliment to, to Yisrael. Because the underlying cause of Yisrael's idol hopping, as it were, was that he was a mavakesh emes. He was this true seeker of truth. He genuinely was seeking the truth. And when he was persuaded by the truth of a certain religion, he would follow it. And if he became more persuaded, persuaded by a different religion, he would then abandon the first one and become a devotee of the new religion. Yisro never assumed that he knew everything or that his past assumptions and decisions were the final word on any matter. His curiosity and willing to try other religions was predicated on a recognition that there might be truth that he had yet to discover. Never even after he would start practicing a certain religion, Yisro was driven to probe, question, and continue searching for the truth. Yisro's spiritual journey took him from one of Odazar to another, until it finally took him to the idolatry of Midjan. And now, in our parsha, the Torah introduces Yisro as the Chohed Midjan, to highlight that even then, despite how convinced he must have been of the truth, of the Avodazar of Midjan, he's the high priest, despite how invested he must have been in that truth of the Midjanite idols, and despite the fact that he was their high priest, and he had all of the honor and benefits of being the high priest, but when he heard about the miracles that Hashem had performed for the Jewish people in taking them out of Egypt, he was willing to give up everything in this prominent position that he had, all for the sake of his now recognition of the truth of Judaism. In other words, being inquisitive, you see from Yisro, is truly a good thing. This Mita being Mavakesh Emes, which ultimately led to curious Yisro, as it were, going on a lengthy journey and eventually joining the Jewish people. What a vital lesson for us and our children. Even though we are sure that we are blessed to already be part of a community of truth, that doesn't exempt us from being inquisitive and thinking people. By asking questions, this will help us gain greater appreciation for the truth of Judaism. It reflects an attitude towards learning and growth and to truth that is necessary to achieve greatness in all areas of life, including the religious. In this way, Yisro was not only a role model then, but very much continues to be a role model for all of us now. There are many, many midrashim which develop, enhance, and embellish the description of the giving of the Torah, Ma'amad Harsinai. Now this is no surprise, given that it's the single most consequential event in human history, and it's simply impossible to overstate the importance of this event. And like so many other midrashim in general, many of these midrashim use language and describe events which are you know, frankly and honestly, a little bit unbelievable. Uh, very hard for us, at least beyond our rational uh, comprehension. And just like in general, there's much of a discussion, a big discussion regarding to Midrashim, whether they're intended to be taken literally or they're meant to just be understood metaphorically. And without minimizing the importance of that question, but it's clear that in general, and I think especially here when it comes to the Midrashim regarding the giving of the Torah, that what's important is not whether every event described in the Medrash literally happened or not as a historical fact, but that the message that Chazal are intending to convey one way or the other through these Midrashim are absolutely critical for us to not only take seriously, but to genuinely meditate over and consider and understand the message being conveyed and how that can illuminate not only our understanding of what happened, but its relevance for our lives. So out of the many, many Midrashim about Matan Torah... I wanted to briefly focus on three and the messages that I believe they intend to convey. The first message and the first medrash I want to discuss is in Shmos Rabbah in Parachavtes. And this 
begins by connecting the events of Matan Torah to a pasuk from the Navi Amos, Arye Sha'ag Milo Yira. When the lion roars, will you not be afraid? And the Medrash goes on to describe that there was something intimidating and overwhelming, even scary, about the giving of the Torah, and that the opening words of these Ten Commandments were like a lion's roar. The, the result, says the Medrash, was absolute silence, not only of the Jewish people who were standing at the foot of the mountain, but of the entire world. And not just of humans, but everything, all animals, birds, says the Medrash, Tzipor lo tzavach, shor lo ga'ah, the birds didn't chirp, the ox didn't moo, says the Medrash, the oceans were still, and even in the heavens, even in the Shemayim, the angelic choir, those angels who generally would say, Kadosh, Kadosh, those Seraphim, those angels, they were also silent. Everyone and everything throughout the world, in the heavens, everywhere, were silent and at attention. No one moved, no one spoke. Ella says the Medrash, Ha'olam shoseik umachrish. There was a deafening silence. And I think that the message clearly intended to be conveyed by this Medrash, which is very important for us to appreciate, is the sheer power, magnitude of that power of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the awe that this inspired. Appreciating that is absolutely critical to understanding what happened. This was not just a kind of quiet, calm, you know, library-like learning experience, but there was something awesome, there was something overwhelming. The sheer power was, in a certain sense, terrifying. And we need to be aware of that, honest about that, think about that, what that conveys in terms of the awesomeness and the might of God and the power of Him giving over of the Torah. A second medrash is a little bit earlier in Shmos Rabbah, Parsha Chavches, where the medrash works off of the opening uh, pasuk in Parak Chav, uh, pasuk Aleph, where the met, where the pasuk tells us that uh, Hashem says, "Vayidaber Elokim es Kol Hadram Ha'ela Lemor." Hashem spoke all of these words, saying. The Medrash seems to be bothered by that extra word, lamor. It seems to be redundant, doesn't seem to be adding anything. What does that mean? All the words that God said, saying. So the Medrash says that, in fact, what's being alluded to is that not just these words of God are being conveyed, the specific Ten Commandments, the Torah being given at Sinai, but more than that was lamor. Every future nevuah, every future prophecy prophesied by a prophet, even in the future, even that, it was all conveyed at Sinai. The Medrash goes on to quote the well-known Pasuk from the end of the Torah, Dvarim Perchavtes, where Moshe recounts that who was at Har Sinai, who received the Torah? Es asher yeshno po imanu omeir hayom, ves asher einenu po imanu hayom. All of those who were physically omeir, standing at the foot of the mountain, and also all those who are not here. And the Medrash understands that that doesn't just mean people who might have been, you know, somewhere off in North America or somewhere else in Europe, but rather it means even the people who were not yet born. But even they were at Harsinai because their souls were there. Everyone, physically or spiritually, in their body and in soul, everyone was at the mountain, everyone heard Harsinai. And the Medrash con- continues and says, not just all of the prophets and all future prophecies were given and delivered at that moment, but every Chacham, every great rabbinic scholar, all of their wisdom, it was all conveyed and absorbed at Sinai. So all the prophets, all the Chachamim, everyone is Har Sinai, everyone is receiving the Torah at that moment. And I think clearly the Medrash is describing and conveying a second important point, and that is the timelessness and the eternal relevance of the Torah. All inspiration, 
all wisdom leads back to the Torah and this moment at Harsinai. In the future, we need to realize and evaluate that no matter how brilliant or persuasive some idea appears, if it does not connect back to Sinai, if we cannot connect it back, if the purveyors of those ideas do not, in substance and in methodology, connect back to the giving of the Torah at Sinai, then from our perspective, religiously, spiritually, it is simply not authentic. Everything that is genuine, everything that is spiritually true and authentic, for that time and for all time, goes back to what happened that moment at Sinai. And third, and lastly, is the Medrash and Pirkei Rebbe Yezer, which working off of the first words of the Aser Sedibros, Anochi Hashem Lokecha, describes how not only the heavens shook and the mountains fell and trees bowed and all sorts of other things which we've kind of already learned about took place, like the wow moment, which we already saw, but here the Medrash adds a new point. That at the first of the Dibros, the Jewish people who were there all died. When the second Dibro was then enunciated and articulated, then they were revived, and at that point they asked Moshe to be their intermediary for all future commandments. And I hear the Torah here is telling us that the giving of the Torah marked a new beginning for the world. People were, were reborn, literally or figuratively. A person living before Torah was given, and after are not the same person. A person with Torah is simply not the same person that he or she was before that experience and without Torah. It is simply transformative. It is a rebirth, nothing less. The story of Yisro and his attachment to the Jewish people is an incredible and sensational story, but more than that, it can be an instructive one. There's so much we can learn from the story of Yisro. And in fact, over the centuries, the Baal Musar have mined this story for various spiritual nuggets of insight into religious growth, self-improvement, and self-development. The Torah tells us right at the outset of our parsha, Yishma Yisro, Choheid Mijan, Chosein Moshe, Es Kol Asher Asalukim Moshe Yisrael Amo Kiotio Shem Es Yisrael Mimitzrayim. The Yisro heard about everything that Hashem had done with Moshe and the Jewish people as he took them out of the land of Egypt. Commenting on this opening pasuk, Rashi quotes from Chazal in the Medrash, Mashmua Shama Uba. What exactly did Yisro hear that made him come? And the Medrash answers, as cited by Rashi, Kriyas Yamsuf Umechamas Amalek, the splitting of the sea and the battle and the heroic victory over the attacking armies of Amalek. Interestingly, a somewhat obvious and really profound question is asked first by the book of Jewish mysticism, the Zohar HaKadosh, which asks, quite simply, Is Yisro the only one who heard this? You know, we have a tradition we understand, and it's easy, really easy to understand, considering how cataclysmic these events were, Certainly it's Yes Matrayim, the splitting of the sea. It wasn't only Yisro who heard. The whole word heard. The whole world knew about these incredible events. Yet, only Yisro came. It can't just be, well, he heard, therefore he came. What about all the other people who presumably heard what happened? And the Zohar goes on to say that, yes, it's true. Everyone heard. That other people, they were not inspired. However, when it came to Yisro, he was inspired, and because of that, he came close to Hashem. In light of this insight of the Zohar, the beautiful contemporary set of Svarim, Otsros HaTorah, here in our Parsha, suggests that this is really the deeper premise 
of the question and answer, the back and forth in Rashi and in the Medrash that we began with. When the Medrash asks, when Rashi asks, what did Yisro hear that made him come? The deeper premise is, if someone like Yisro, who had so much to lose, the Chohen Mejan, the high priest, he gave up so much in order to come and attach himself to the Jewish people, presumably he must have heard something very special. He must have been privy to something private, some kind of a big scoop. What did Yisro know that other people didn't that made him leave and attach himself to the Jewish people? And the answer, says the Medrash, is nothing unique, nothing special, nothing private, no big scoop. Yisro heard no more and no less than what everyone else in the world heard. But he heard. He truly let those words, let the events sink in. He understood the implications that if this is what Hashem has done for the Jewish people, then this is the nation that he wants to be a part of. This is where the truth lies. And the the lasting and very relevant message uh, that uh, the great Baali Musr extract from this insight and from this story is the fact that we are all, each in our own way, often, many times in our life, hopefully, inspired, exposed to all sorts of things which are genuinely inspiring us to grow, to improve ourselves in all sorts of ways. However, most of us don't act right away on that. We'll get to it when we get to it. We start analyzing it and thinking it and rethinking it in the name of sophistication or some other rationalization. And before you know it, the inspiration has faded and we don't act on it. The lesson of Yisro is that it's not enough to just hear, to be inspired, but then you need to act on it. That was the difference between Yisro and everybody else. And because of that, he was Ocha to have a whole parsha in the Torah named after him and make a lasting legacy and impact on the whole world and certainly on the Jewish people and the Torah. However, there is a flip side to this story, at least according to some sources, which is more painful, honestly, but equally uh, powerful and relevant and important for us to consider. And that is that according to a number of Midrashim, Yalkut Shimoni, the Sifrei, in Bamidbar, in Baaloscha, when the Torah there describes Yisro actually uh, leaving of the Jewish people, Lo Yisro tells Moshe that he's going back to his homeland. And Moshe in the next Pasuk uh, argues with him and convinces him to stay, tries to convince him to stay, but the Medrash, or at least some Medrashim, uh, are quite clear that they think that Yisro was more or less Choser Suro. He went back to uh, Midjan, and perhaps not just geographically, but religiously and ideologically, he went back to his old, his old ways, uh, which is a painful postscript to this story. So the Otsar Satora asks, you know, how could it be? You know, the Yisro who was so convinced of the truth of Judaism that he gave up everything to join Moshe in the Midbar, you know, some years later, he gives it all up, he reverts, he goes back. And the answer seems to be that, yes, it's true, there was an incredible amount of inspiration initially, and to his great credit, he acted on it. But those type of inspiration don't last. Spiritual highs all, always and inevitably fade. Only way to make it stick is not just to rest on your laurels. It's not enough to act once. That's the initial inspiration. But you have to continue investing and growing and growing and growing, or else eventually that initial inspiration fades. The same Yalkut Shimoni actually suggests really an astounding insight. I don't know how well known that even the famous story of Ninveh, 
who did tshuva when the Navi Yonah came to them, but according to this version in the Medrash, 40 days later, they also went back to their wicked ways, as bad or worse than before. That, again, the same message, that it's one thing to have in a momentary inspiration, call a kavod to anyone who does act on that, but you have to continue to work on yourself and invest, or eventually you'll lose it. The Vilna Gon says in Evan Shlema, Im tamid malamala, Either you're going up or you're going down. You can't rest on your laurels. We have to constantly be growing or eventually the spiritual gravity will pull us down. The centerpiece of this week's parsha is, of course, the Aseris Adibros, the Ten Commandments. And the fourth of those commandments is the Mitzvah of Shabbos, as it's described here in our parsha in Perachof, Pasuches, Zachor Es Yom HaShabbos Lakadsho, Remember the Day of Shabbos, and sanctify it. The Gemara in Masech Tabsachim derives from this Pasuk that this is the source for the Mitzvah Daraisa of making Kiddush on Friday night. It's generally understood, and this is discussed in the Gemara as well, that the Kiddush we make on Shabbos morning is only Midr However, the Daraisa commandment, which is included in the Asarza Dibros, specifically refers to the Mitzvah of Kiddush Friday night. However, there are a number of different interpretations of this Gemara, which get to the heart of what is truly the essence of Kiddush. There is a significant group of prominent Rishonim. The Rambam, it's an opinion in Tosvos, the Ramban, the Sefer HaChinuch, who all understand that the essence of the mitzvah of Kiddush is simply the words that you say. By saying these words of distinguishing that today is Shabbos, it's different than the other days of the week, that is already the essence of Zachor Es Yom HaShabbos. We have been Zachreihu. We have remembered it by designating it with our words as being different than the preceding and previous six days. I don't we have a cup of wine? Don't we drink that wine? Yes, of course, and that is a mitzvah. But the wine is only a rabbinic addition, a rabbinic enhancement to the mitzvah. But the Torah commandment, the one that the Sarasa Dibros in our Parsha is genuinely obligating us in, is merely the words. That's the essence of the mitzvah. The rice is kiddush bidvarim, the words, and anything else with the wine is a bonus midrabanan. The Gemara, interestingly, in Masechet Psachim, that derives the mitzvah of kiddush, specifically mentions wine. However, zacharehu al hayayin says the Gemara, and yet this large group of prominent authorities say that's just an asmachta. That's already referring to the drabanan. It didn't mean it on a daraisa level. On the Torah daraisa level, it's simply the words. The wine is not part of the essence of the mitzvah. However, there's a second view, which takes the words of the Gemara here in Psachim uh, more literally, and that is an opinion quoted in Tosvos, both here in Psachim as well as in Masechta Shavuos, and says, yes, the Gemara specifically meant it. Zacharehu aliyayin. That's what the Gemara said. How can you say that the wine is not part of the essential mitzvah? However, the Gemara did not say to drink the wine. The Gemara merely said to have the wine. The remembrance, the words that you say should be quote-unquote on wine. That is to say, you should have wine on the table, or maybe it means you have to hold the wine, but either way, you don't have to drink the wine. The fact that we drink the wine, and there is a mitzvah to drink the wine, according to this opinion, that's the rabbinic addition. But the fact that you say the words holding the wine, that the wine is like a, a toast, if you will, holding the wine, having the wine present, enhances the words that you say, according to this second view, that is actually part of the mitzvah da'oraisa. The third view uh, presented by Rishonim, is actually an opinion quoted by the Rishon, the Or Zarua, as well as the commentary that is or once once thought to be the Rashi 
commentary on Masechta Nazir. I say that because we now know that it was not written by Rashi, even though it's on the page of the Gemara there in a way that we think it looks like Rashi, but scholars generally now believe that that was not Rashi, and therefore more accurately people just refer it to it generically as the Mafarish. So the Mafarish in Nazir and the Or Zarua actually both have this third minority view, and they say that in fact the mitzvah is not only to say the words, not only to have wine in your hand or on the table, but in fact drinking the wine is also part of the essential mitzvah Mid Araisa. This they derive not from the Gemara Masachim we started with, but from an additional Gemara, a Gemara Masachta Nazir. We know that a Nazir is someone, could be a man or a woman, who takes a special vow to prohibit from him or herself certain things. And one of those things is not to benefit from wine products, not to benefit from wine. And in the context of that discussion, the Gemara seems to be asking, you know, how could a person ever become a Nazir? What would that do for Shabbos? when presumably you have to drink wine as part of the mitzvah of Kiddush. And without getting to all the details, because there is an issue of what the correct text, what the correct girsa of that Gemara is, but at least one way of reading the Gemara, depending on what text you have is, it seems like the Gemara here is assuming that part of the mitzvah midah araisa, which would therefore potentially prevent, present a conflict on a Torah level to the institution of Nazir, that at least one way to read in the Gemara is that, in fact, the mitzvah of Kiddush includes not only saying the Kiddush over wine, but actually drinking the wine. So as a result, this yields a three-way machlokas in the Rishonim. One view is just the words, a second view that it's the words with wine, and only a third view that says drinking the wine is part of the essential mitzvah. How do we paskin in this fascinating machlokas? So most poskim in the achronim, and this is the conclusion reached by the Mishnah Brura, paskin like the first view, it is, seems to be the majority of prominent Rishonim, that the essence of Kiddush is the words that you say, and that the wine, whether having a wine, let alone drinking it, are all merely rabbinic enhancements of the mitzvah. This assumption that the essence of Kiddush on a Torah level is just the words that we say actually gives rise to two fascinating and controversial and debated, but fascinating suggestions in Achronim. One is suggested by the Magan Avram, who says, if the essence of Kiddush is the words, remembering setting aside Shabbos by the words that we say, so who said it has to wait until we get home and what we do what you and I call quote-unquote Kiddush? The very fact that we mention Kiddush already in Mariv, in the Shimon Esrei Mariv, we talked about Shabbos, and now today is Shabbos, and tonight is Shabbos. So says the Magen of Rome, we've already, quote-unquote, been Yosei Kiddush. When we daven in Shul Friday night, when we say Mariv, we're actually doing, you know, killing two birds with one stone. It's the mitzvah of Mariv, but it's also, in essence, the mitzvah of Kiddush. Fascinating. Other poskim reject this because they assume even though in theory it's possible, but there may be aspects of the mitzvah which are not included in the Shimon Esrei, plus since you're coming home and you're, Inevitably, you know for sure you're planning on making Kiddush shortly thereafter. We may view that as like an implicit kavana intent not to be Yotze, but at least in theory it's considered as a very serious possibility by many poskim. Rabbi Kiv Eger goes one step further. He suggests that merely coming home and saying to one's spouse or children or just a neighbor, good Shabbos, if you say that after dark, that's also Zachreyu Alayayin. That's actually not wine, but that's Zachor Yom Shabbos Akacho. I've acknowledged Shabbos with my words. And perhaps that's already part of the mitzvah. And other posts can reject that uh, because maybe you need to have praise of Shabbos, not merely remember it. Maybe praise is part of it. But either way, these are two fascinating suggestions at Chidushim, which are all premised on the idea that the words are the essence of Kiddush. In the run-up to Kabbalah Satora, we read that the Jewish people were Yichan Sham Yisrael Neged Hahar, that they were encamped at the base of the mountain.
However, Rashi quotes from the Medrash in the Mechilta, a very famous and deeper teaching uh, on this Pasuk, that this alludes to the fact that the Jewish people were not just at the camp of the mountain, but rather, they were fully united with one heart, with one mind, in anticipation and commitment of receiving the Torah. Rav Meir Shapiro, the famed Jewish leader, Gaon and Tzaddik, founder of Yeshiva's Chachmei Lublin, and the whole Dafyomi learning system, among his many, many other accomplishments, in his beautiful set of Sfarim Imre Das, points out that we see from this Pasuk and this beautiful, short, but powerful teaching of the Medrash, about the necessity of achtos. Achtos is a prerequisite for the Torah. The Jewish people needed to be unified before receiving the Torah. However, he also says that we have to realize and appreciate it's not just that achtos and unity is a prerequisite for the Torah, but that Torah itself is the key to achtos. Not only at Harsina when we were standing all together, but throughout the generations when we have been scattered and the various different lands, nevertheless, by sharing in the same Torah, that is what kept Jews from the east and the west, north and south, everyone together, because we have that common purpose, the common language, and the common text that the Torah provides. He also added a very beautiful observation that this achdos uh, through Torah is most specifically highlighted through the development of Torah Shabal Peh. As he says, just look at the page of a Gemara and the back of a Gemara. We have the basis of the Gemara of Torah Shabal Peh, the Mishnah, which comes from Eretz Yisrael, the Gemara commenting on that coming from Bovel, the early commentaries such as Rashi and Tosfos from France, the Rif from Fez in Morocco, the Ramban and his Talmudim from Spain, the Maharsha and many others from Poland and Ukraine, etc., etc. It's really breathtaking, something we don't often take for granted when a person just sits down for learning Gemara or studying Torah. The brilliant array of texts and Mefarshim really are coming together from different times, but also completely different places in the Jewish world. And the fact that they all come together having studied commented on and revering the same primary text really highlights this idea of Torah being the glue that holds the Jewish people together, not only over time, but throughout the various places in the world where we have been scattered during our Golos. The Sefer Imre Das then brings down, in the name of Rameer Shapiro, that on a later or a separate occasion, he actually went further, and he explained that the Torah itself is the greatest skula for achtos, not just a prerequisite and not just a byproduct, but it is the skula, the best way to achieve achtos is through Torah and appreciating that. And he shared an incredible Gemara in Masech Zvachim, really towards the end of the Masechet, on Davkuf Tezayin Amar Aleph, where the Gemara tells us that there was this tremendous noise when the Torah was given. We're going to read about our Sinai and Kabbalah Satorah, the Shabbos, and the Gemara there describes this incredible noise that the whole world, including the non-Jewish world, heard at the moment of Kabbalah Satora. And the Gemara describes how the various uh, Jew- non-Jewish kings and leaders gathered around their leading prophet, none other than Bilam, and they asked him, what happened? What's with all this noise? Was there perhaps a mobble, a flood, which everyone's screaming in fright about? And explains, well, no, it can't be that, because Hashem has already promised that He's not going to destroy the world uh, with water. So then the non-Jewish kings ask Bilam, well, maybe it was a mobble of Aish, not so much a flood in the sense of uh, water, but maybe it was just some huge 
conflagration, some fire which is threatening to kill the whole world, and that's where all the noise is coming from. And again, this time, Bilam says, no, no, you have it completely wrong. Rather, there was a chemda tova, a very special and beloved treasure that Hashem had kept, hitting, had kept hidden and all for himself for almost a thousand generations. And now at this very moment, this special treasure, this chemda tova, the Torah itself, Hashem has given to the Jewish people. Immediately in response to this, the non-Jews are inspired, excuse me, and Bilam explains that this Torah is Hashem owes la'amoyitain. Hashem gave his owes, his strength, i.e. the Torah, to the Jewish people. And right away the non-Jews respond to Bilam, Hashem yivarech es amo ba shalom. It's a very pretty Gemara, it's a very uh, uh, inspiring Gemara in a certain sense, but its real and deeper meaning is a little bit elusive. What are we talking about? Why would all of a sudden the non-Jews think there was a flood or there was a fire? And in what way does Bilam's response to the non-Jews elicit their response of Oz la Moyutain and Hashem Yivarech Shalom? What exactly is going on in the continuation of the Gemara? So Rav Meir Shapiro so beautifully explains that the true noise, the true shock that they got, what really brought them to ask Bilam what's going on was the incredible achdos that they perceived and they realized the Jewish people had attained at Har Sinai. And they, just trying to process this incredible unity from what was approximately two million people, all unified, not fighting, but all with one heart and of one mind, they assumed naturally that it must have been born out of fear and danger that brought everyone together. After all, in the everyday world, the normal world, what could bring so many people together in any form of unity? It must be a shared danger, a shared threat. War brings people together. We saw in the early months of uh, corona that people were unified. And it really, frankly, in all these cases, is not so much a natural or a unity l'shema, if you were, but rather it's a very pragmatic sense of unity. We have a tremendous external threat. We all need to come together in order to fight that threat. So Bilaam says, no, 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 you don't understand. The Jewish people are different. In the non-Jewish world, in general world, that takes an external threat to bring people together. But the Jewish people are different. Hashem has given them the Torah because that itself is the source of their achdos, their common desire to follow Ratzon Hashem, to learn the same Torah, to come together as an Am Echa, to give greater glory to their king, that itself is what gives them strength. It's the greatest weapon that Jewish people have. Hashem owes Lamoyutain, he gave that strength of unity to the Jewish people through Torah. The non-Jews were so impressed and taken by this new concept of unity coming as an ideal and not just as a pragmatic necessity that they proclaimed Hashem Yivarech HaSamo Shalom. Hashem truly has blessed the Jewish people with a special gift of Shalom. And of course we should note that this was one of, if not the prime motivation in Rameir Shapiro founding the Dafyomi. Not just everyone should learn, but that Jews around the world should all be learning the same thing. True unity.